This is the JH podcast for September 2011. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Samuel Truitt, Associate Professor of History at the University of New Mexico. Professor Truitt is the author of a book entitled Fugitive Landscapes, the Forgotten History of the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, published by Yale University Press in 2006. He is also co-author, along with Pekka Hamelainen, of the lead essay on new directions in borderlands history, published in the September 2011 Borderlands special issue of the JAH. Professor Truitt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. In your lead essay for the special issue of the Journal of American History, you and Pekka Hamelainen co-author a piece titled On Borderlands. And your first statement in that essay is, at some point in the recent past, borderlands history went mainstream a field that Americanists once considered a regional sideshow has become a main attraction. I was wondering if you could unpack that for us. How can borderlands history change the ways we approach American history? Right. Well, that's a good question. Um, Probably the greatest potential of borderlands history uh, is its ability to find new center points for American history. And by this, I mean not necessarily looking for alternatives to our more familiar national, imperial, or cultural histories, but rather by shining greater light on the crossroads or the entanglements um, of these histories. With narratives that are rooted across empires or for the later period across nations or for all periods across cultures or across geographical spaces, The field of borderlands history is really poised to reorient American history by pulling it from its state-centered bearings and making it something completely different. And one of the things that we argue in this piece is that this transformation is already underway. Um, Borderlands history is already finding a range of new center points, uh, drawing on a range of fields, uh, such as the new Indian history, uh, the so-called new transnational history, but also taking its cues from border crossings among the fields of Native American history, First Nations history, Latino, Chicano history, Asian American history, African American history, and and so forth. And I think one of the things that's probably important to clarify up front is that these border crossings have been with us for quite some time, but what Borderlands history is now doing is making these kinds of field-based border crossings or spatial border crossings Uh, and even temporal border crossings, much more at center of what we do. They're approaching these border crossings with greater intentionality. And I think the big challenge, obviously, is for this generation of borderlands historians to find ways to make sense of all of this without simply nibbling away at master narratives. I think if you look at recent work uh, across the many varieties of what we call borderlands history, we find borderlands historians making critical interventions at relatively small scales. But I think we're at a point now where we need to think harder about the call that Richard White made uh, in 1998, uh, 1999 uh, in his essay, The Nationalization of Nature, uh, where he encourages historians to carry their stories more systematically across scales, smaller scales, mid-range scales, uh, larger scales. And I think that borderlands historians 
might do more than move systematically across these scales. Say, for example, to connect the smallest scale relationships of gender, family, and local power to larger scale historical entanglements among cultures, regions, empires, and nations that might span an area as large as the North American continent, uh, or even in some instances, uh, the world. Without larger scale insights, we run the risk of simply reacting locally to larger scale paradigms, but really offering nothing in their place. And I think also Borderlands history is in a position to change the way we approach American history by telling more open-ended stories. That is, stories that begin and end uh, in different places, uh, rather than simply telling stories that ultimately lead back uh, to the nation, as we often tend to do uh, when we tell stories, particularly at larger scales uh, in American history. Taking off on that point, I'm wondering if you can um, elaborate on the relationship between this new borderlands history and frontier history and the kinds of narratives that accompany it. Right. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. I think I would start off by saying that we're probably going to have a fair amount of entanglement between these two different fields, between borderlands and his, history and frontier history for some time to come. There's a lot of overlap, uh, and I think some scholars have worked hard to make distinctions between the two fields, but I think there are also a number of challenges in, in doing so. And, and I think part of the challenge is that if we think of Borderlands history as something that began in the 1920s with Herbert Eugene Bolton, the so-called father of Spanish Borderlands history, and I think many Borderlands historians do make a nod rather systematically back to Herbert Eugene Bolton, then we have to consider the fact that Herbert Eugene Bolton had a fairly close intellectual relationship with his precursor, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, who many people think of as the so-called father of frontier history. Uh, and in fact, what Bolton was interested in doing was taking frontier history farther south and farther into the interior of North America and thinking about how the Spanish uh, also had frontiers uh, of expansion uh, and of state-making and of institution-building that mattered uh, ultimately to American history. What Bolton ultimately did to this, probably more by accident than by intention, is he started finding these stories taking him out across a larger hemispheric stage, and that created some interesting new differences. Stories that once ended with one nation, typically the United States, began to have multiple endpoints, both north and south of what many people today would call North American history uh, and Latin American history. That open-endedness, telling stories that point in different directions and not ultimately back towards a single nation, is something that continues to be one of the hallmarks of borderlands histories. New frontier histories uh, also view contact zones from multiple sides, but more often than not, they still set the stage for what will become a single national or subnational narrative. And obviously, one can carry out the same kind of open-ended work I'm talking about under the rubric of frontier history, and historians such as William Cronin uh, have in fact made strong arguments about the need to write more open-ended frontier histories. But I think given the long-standing habit in America of seeing frontiers as spaces that ultimately prepare the way for particular nations, the United States, uh, or regions, for example, the U.S. West, um, I think the borderlands history rubric is possibly less of an uphill battle in this regard. 
If Bolton's legacy, that is his focus on sort of trans-imperial contexts and hemispheric processes and stories, uh, continues, uh, then what distinguishes the new Borderlands history of, say, the last decade or so from previous Borderlands history? Uh, that's a great question. And I would probably begin by saying uh, we're at a point now where there are probably a number of new Borderlands histories. Uh, it's hard to really sit down and, and uh, say with any certainty what the new Borderlands history is. If we want to think of the kind of Borderlands history that Herbert Eugene Bolton did as a kind of an older variation of Borderlands history, we see a history that at least at the outset is concerned with very frontierish kinds of questions, uh, how empires expand across space, how they come into contact with new places and new peoples, how that shapes institutions or how institutions shape these new spaces or shape these new peoples. In Bolton's telling, uh, and I think increasingly as time went by in his career, these stories became celebratory stories about Spain uh, in America. Uh, in these stories, uh, you have romanticized white Spanish colonizers uh, who are moving north and creating a space that's just as vibrant uh, for Bolton as the Anglo-American spaces of expansion that Frederick Jackson Turner had talked about in a previous generation. Uh, and in fact, I think we can see Bolton's work primarily working against a certain strain of black legend thinking uh, in American history. The black legend referring to the depredations of the Spaniards upon native peoples throughout the Western Hemisphere. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think more and more as he went on, uh, that became really kind of the uh, energy, if you will, uh, kind of the guiding light behind many of the stories that he told. The problem was obviously by celebrating the Spanish um, and focusing more and more as he did in his career on the Spanish, he left out a lot of actors. And so what you have really starting in the 1930s and moving forward through the 1960s and 1970s uh, is the rise of a, a other kinds of histories that play out on the same stage, Chicano history, Native American history, later revisionist histories of the American West. Uh, whose interest it was to tell different kinds of stories. Uh, and let me just use the example of Chicano history, because I think for those of us who do modern borderlands history, it's impossible to think about newer borderlands histories without thinking about the intervention of Chicano history. Chicano historians really began to establish their field in, in kind of a self-conscious way in the 1960s and 1970s. And the stories that Herbert Eugene Bolton told, uh, again, about romanticized white Spanish colonizers, sat poorly with the politics of the Chicano movement uh, and the post-colonial view of America that informed most Chicano and Latino histories. And so Chicano historians came in and began to look at uh, mestizos. To a certain extent, they looked at indigenous players. Um, obviously, uh, the focus on indigenous players is going to become a very important part of Native American histories of this region as well. And this is going on in the New Western history, uh, which emerges in the 1980s, and it begins to infuse so much of the field that by the time I entered the field in the 1990s, the borderlands had changed quite a bit. Most of us interested in modern borderlands history had to turn significantly to fields like Chicano history to get our bearings. 
our generation was marked by fresh collaborations among Chicano historians, historians of the U.S. West, and historians of Mexico. It's a period in which I think you see scholars not only bringing different stories to the table, but learning from one another uh, and uh, kind of a creative cross-pollination among fields. And I think it's that kind of cross-pollination that's really marking the new borderlands histories, and I'll use the plural there uh, more than anything else. It certainly brings to mind the, the works of David J. Weber, who passed away in 2010, and his influence on not only the field of Chicano or Mexican-American history, but also uh, borderlands history and, and Latin American history. And he seems to be a person whose work uh, crosses over these these various fields of, right. of history. That's right. What are the directions you feel would be most useful for the field to grow? Well, I think right now we're in a we're in a position. If I were looking at borderlands history as my stock portfolio, I would probably say let's not uh, sell too much right now. Let's kind of hold on to what we have because there's already a fair amount of growth going on right now. Um, looking at the growth that's going on and looking at some of the exciting new work that's coming out, uh, and Pekka Hamelainen and I did this when we sat down to write our piece, there were two strands that seemed to really kind of jump out in a really strong, vivid kind of way. Um, and those two strands are Native American history uh, and transnational history. Uh, and I think Native American history, particularly what we've come to call the new Indian history um, has had an enormous influence on so-called borderlands historians of early America. The influence there is very similar to the influence that Chicano history, for example, has had on modern U.S.-Mexico borderlands history. Uh, I think that one of the growth areas is going to be cultivating this relationship and really developing it even further, this relationship again between uh, borderlands history and Native American history. On the modern side of things, transnational history has really come to the fore as an exciting new growth area. It starts off at a relatively small scale when you find uh, Chicano historians or Mexican historians or historians of the U.S. West crossing the actual U.S.-Mexico border, working in the archives of both nations and beginning to see how uh, stories anchored in more than one nation really change the kinds of things that they set out to look at. And Quite similarly, at the U.S.-Canadian border, uh, people are now increasingly working transnationally at that border. And by transnational, I simply mean relationships that cross uh, national borders. And many borderlands histories follow these crossings relatively locally. Uh, They're kind of mapping out what we might call, I guess, transnational regions that hug uh, modern boundaries. Where I think transnational history is really going to push borderlands history in new ways is by urging them to think in much more broad-scale ways, large-scale ways, uh, about where these border-crossing relationships, border-crossing networks, border-crossing nodes might lead them. Uh, So, for example, in the issue that's coming out, we're going to be seeing a number of essays that talk about Asian American history or even Asian history, for that matter. And uh, this raises all kinds of really interesting new questions. How far do you go following transnational networks before it's no longer a borderlands? Um, And I think 
to, to take off on that point, uh, for many U.S. historians, the term borderlands conjures up images of Spanish colonial frontiers or U.S.-Mexico border contexts. Uh, so how, how does this new scholarship sort of refocus attention to other geographical contexts? Right. Well, I think, I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind about the idea of borderlands is that it's, it's really an, an, it's, it's an academic notion uh, more than an actual label that people might use to call themselves. Just to take the examples of Chicano history or Native American history, uh, there are plenty of people who self-identify as Chicanos or Native Americans. But I think you would be harder pressed to find people who say, uh, I'm a borderland subject, uh, I'm a borderlander. What's important to keep in mind is that the term borderlands history, as it's used among historians today, was not even invented by Herbert Eugene Bolton, as many of us imagine, but by one of his editors. Uh, who was casting about for a metaphor uh, to really describe what Her Herbert Eugene Bolton was in a way that might distinguish it from the frontier history that Frederick Jackson Turner did. I think the idea that borderlands can be a kind of a movable floating label that could apply to different kinds of relationships is something that we need to really keep in mind when we're looking at where borderlands history has gone today. Much of what I just described about border crossings into Mexico, border crossings into Canada, border crossings into Asia, you're going to find often under the label of Mexican history or Asian American history or Native American history. What borderlands history is, is a new scholarly optic uh, that more and more people are picking up to think about all of these different fields in entangled kinds of ways. And so, Getting back to the question, how far can we stretch the idea of borderlands? Was it not once uh, an area that pertained to the northern limits of Spanish expansion north, or is not the borderlands a specific region between the United States and Mexico? The answer to that is we, to a certain extent, invented the notion of borderlands to describe these places. So there is no real, how would we say this, kind of natural place that is a borderlands to juxtapose to unnatural borderlands places. So you're arguing that there's no geographic specificity to that, that pertains to the term borderlands, such as between the United States and Mexico, but it could equally apply to the United States and, say, Canada or the Pacific Rim and Asia um, or other contexts? That's right. I think it can. The problem is going to be, and this is the issue that you have with these academic terms, is whether enough academics are really going to buy uh, the application of the label. I think a lot of this is, to a certain extent, a collaborative process. The term borderlands becomes relatively easy to imagine when you've got deserts inland um, and you're crossing a border between two nations. And I think the fact that there's a border, a border to a modern nation states that divides the United States and Canada today also makes it relatively easy to think of these terrestrial borderlands, again, as borderlands, because the term has the term border and it has lands in it. But what do you do when you're crossing a huge body of water? Because water is not land, and China and California are not necessarily bordering one another. They're not adjacent to one another. Uh, proximity becomes 
an issue there. And so the question is, how much will scholars collectively be willing to stretch the term to apply to those kinds of spaces? And I think right now, part of the answer is uh, many are not willing to do so. I think many are more comfortable thinking about borderlands um, as adjacent land-based kinds of entities. And let me, let me give you an example. At a recent panel on 20th century borderlands history, an audience member asked the panelists if histories of port cities should be included in borderlands history. And I think this was about two or three years ago. And as I recall, most of the people in the room seemed uncomfortable with the idea. They worried that borderlands history was already getting stretched too thin. But the issue is, with the insights of transnational history and following networks across both land and water to all corners of the world, it's going to be harder to keep thinking about borderlands in the same old land-based ways. For example, consider the history of the Chinese at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in the 19th century. Chinese journeys in these borderlands often begin with maritime journeys, passages through seaports, and then from there to subsequent land-based border crossings. And since all of these networks, nodes, and border crossings are crucial to placing the Chinese in the borderlands, how much sense does it really make to divide these trajectories into those parts that do and do not fit into borderlands history? And for that matter, are terrestrial and maritime borderlands really that different? But, but on the other hand, could one, uh, could one argue that if borderlands are simply contact zones and they're ubiquitous, uh, they can be found in uh, seafaring contexts as well as terrestrial contexts, then do we run the risk of uh, diluting the concept of borderlands by uprooting it from geographic uh, geographically specific contexts? Right. Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it might be useful, I like to think that it's useful, to think about what we have already done, let's say, with imperial history, okay, and the notion of empire. And we followed empires across land. Uh, we followed empires across oceans. The term empire becomes a catch-all term that talks about relations of uh, commercial control, uh, as well as land-based conquests of people. Sometimes we talk about empires to imply certain levels of territorialization. Other times we talk about empires as nodes of power throughout the world. And people who do imperial history argue these distinctions all the time, and they make distinctions between different kinds of empires. But imperial history still exists, and is still quite vibrant as a field. Um, I think that the question is, how can we make borderlands history carry similar kind of weight rather than collapsing under the weight of all of these different kinds of connections that we're bringing uh, to the table? So one way we could think about it is it will dilute the field. If we bring too much onto the table, we need to really keep things uh, kind of relatively focused uh, in order for the field to thrive. But I think if we think more broadly about borderlands so that it encompasses not only terrestrial contact zones, but maritime contact zones, so it's not looking just north and south, but also east and west, it's looking in multiple directions. And then we think about what all of these contact zones have in common and how they can help us think about and critique older kinds of histories uh, in new ways. I would like to think that we can come up with the tools to allow this expanded borderlands history to thrive and to be as useful for us as an expanded imperial 
uh, history already has been. So returning to the question that we started out with, with which was um, how can borderlands history change the ways that we approach American history, I'm wondering uh, to what extent can borderlands history then help to further the internationalization of U.S. history? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. I think one of the most compelling ways that borderlands history can, can, can help internationalize American history is by creating different center points uh, for the stories that we tell and also telling stories in new kinds of ways. And so let me talk about each of those separately. Um, if we think more systematically about the various border crossings that make America what it is today, and if we follow those border crossings not only to America but back out into the world, then we can come up with very specific, concrete kinds of historical relationships that connect American history to not just global history in a large scale, but maybe even very small-scale histories uh, around the world. Um, and let me give you an example just from uh, a project that I'm working on right now, where I'm following an English globetrotter um, who passes through Southeast Asia uh, in the 1840s. He sails opium clippers. He fights pirates. Um, he uh, were so-called pirates. Um, this is a time when uh, the British uh, and other powers coming into Indonesia are using terms like pirate to distinguish between what they see as good guys and bad guys, the people who uh, help support their commercial visions in the region and those who don't support their commercial visions in the region. And my individual goes from this world to the California gold rush uh, in 1849, where he falls in with some Mexican villagers returning to a small peasant village in northern Mexico, uh, where he ends up spending the rest of his life. He marries a Mexican woman. He starts having Mexican children. Uh, his name changes, and ultimately he will be remembered. Uh, his name is John Denton Hall and he'll remember, be remembered among family members on both sides of the border as their ancestor, Juan Benton, uh, who happened to come from England. Now, one of the things that we could look at his story and say, well, it's a traditional immigrant story. Uh, he starts off in one space, he ends up in another space. But so much of his life is actually about moving in a very open-ended way through the world. He doesn't have an idea at the beginning of his story that he's going to end up in America. Um, he ends up in lots of places, kind of like a pinball, if you will, bouncing through the world that he doesn't really uh, imagine uh, really at the outset. So at any given point of his story, his trajectory could go a number of different ways. Um, but he ends up in America. He ends up in the United States-Mexico borderland. Uh, and if I'm writing a story about him as part of U.S.-Mexico borderlands history, I think it becomes useful to think about the other connections, the connections that, for example, lead to Borneo, where he spent a fair amount of his life fighting pirates, before he comes to northern Mexico and writes about fighting Apache Indians. Or China, where he spends uh, a fair amount of time smuggling opium, to northern Sonora, Mexico, where he spends a fair amount of time smuggling uh, along the coast of northern Mexico. And to think about those connections, I have to follow networks leading in other directions around the world, not necessarily moving to a larger scale, although larger scale visions of these networks are important, 
but also very locally, thinking about what he's doing on board opium trading vessels uh, in China, thinking about what he's doing on the ground and how he's interacting with uh, indigenous peoples, with Malay or Chinese or English or Dutch uh, counterparts uh, in this region, and thinking about how those borderland encounters shape his later borderland encounters in the U.S.-Mexico border region. So your contention is that the Odyssey of, John, of Juan Denton Hall is both exemplary of a sort of uh, process of globetrotting that, uh, that other individuals have undertaken, but also if you look at it on the micro scale, that it can be very rich in talking about contact between two entirely different worlds uh, coming That's together right. in one space. That's right. And I'm not sure how exemplary he is, but one of the things that I find interesting is when I'm sitting in Texas, for example, uh, talking with his, some of his descendants who have moved, their parents have moved from Mexico to the United States, uh, and they now live in the United States, and they're describing their family tree to me. There are a number of other individuals in that Mexican part of their family tree who are like John Denton Hall, people who come from France, people who come from Spain, who have their own really unique trajectories uh, into the borderlands. And I think when we look at a local scale like this, we start finding not necessarily that stories of individuals like John Denton Hall are exemplary, but that they're quite common. And perhaps they complicate the kind of binaries that we often find ourselves falling into when we talk about migration and cultural contact. That's right. Absolutely. Sounds like a fascinating project. Well, thanks. It's been a lot of fun to work on, but it's, it's, it's also a very uh, daunting uh, kind of project. And maybe I'd like to say a few words about that because it gets to a point that I worry about all of the time, which is how do I teach my students uh, how to do borderlands history? What kind of workload are we setting up for ourselves with this expanded way of thinking about borderlands uh, and so forth? And what we've already seen over the last two decades uh, is work coming out by people who are crossing borders and working in two, three different kinds of languages. And as you move throughout the world on, in, in different directions on sometimes a larger scale, other kinds of languages are going to have to come into the mix. I'm not going to be able to learn Chinese or, or Mandarin. The Malay languages, the Bengali languages that John Denton Hall spoke to a certain extent when he came to the United States, I'm not going to learn to, to speak because I simply don't have time to do so. It sets up a relatively ambitious platform in which historians also become somewhat vulnerable. They're pushing in directions as borderlands historians where they might be seen as interlopers, where they might be seen as dilettantes, uh, as generalists. And I think part of the challenge for borderlands historians will be how to enter this expanded terrain in a very smart way, uh, in a way that will allow them to get expertise uh, selectively in order to bring to the table new kinds of insights that require that expertise so that if you put borderlands historians together in a room, each of them might bring to the table radically different kinds of expertise, but with the idea that collectively they're going to start putting together a very different jigsaw puzzle of the world, if it will. You're an advocate of scholarly collaboration across fields to come to um, a better study of the comparative experiences of different regions and to fold them into uh, a borderlands comparative framework. Is that right? That, that's 
That's right. Um, and I think that the future of Borderlands history is really going to rise or fall on the ability of the historians who do Borderlands history to collaborate uh, with people in other fields and with scholars who don't self-identify as Borderlands historians or who might self-identify as two or three things. Maybe Scholar A self-identifies as a Native American historian and a Borderlands historian and a Mexican historian, and person B might be an Asian American historian and a historian of race and ethnicity and a Borderlands historian. But I think many Borderlands historians are going to have to build their expertise and sell their stories to the world by forging networks to people who don't uh, call themselves Borderlands historians and who know very important things about many parts of the world that Borderlands historians really can't learn by themselves. I think, I remember, gosh, it must be about 10 years now, there was a conference I was at where one of the students uh, in the audience stood up and thought out loud about the possibility that Borderlands Historian might become the new master paradigm under which we could collect different fields like Asian American history or Chicano history or uh, Native American history. But I don't think that's the direction that Borderlands historian history is going, and nor do I think it's a, a direction that Borderlands history should go. I think in many ways there are things that my Native American history colleagues, my Chicano history colleagues, and my Asian American colleagues know that's absolutely crucial for me to learn from them as such, as Chicano history, as Asian American history, as Native American history, in order for me to begin to kind of assemble the more... Uh, uh, eclectic, I suppose, border-crossing narratives that I want to tell. So I think that there's a kind of a synergy uh, that's growing between fields, a synergy between early American borderlands history and the new Indian history, for example, synergy between Chicano history and U.S.-Mexico borderlands history, uh, synergy between U.S.-Canadian borderlands history and First Nations or Native American history. Wherever you go to the various borderlands, I think you're going to find that that synergy is going to be the secret to the success of the field. Is your sense then that Borderlands history as a, as a field is growing in de departments of history across the nation? And if so, what do you project the future uh, to look like? That's a good question. Um, I think that Borderlands, I, I think we're seeing more job ads for people who do Borderlands history. I'm not sure that the people who put together those job ads are thinking about the same things that those of us who do Borderlands history uh, are doing. I worry, I do think, and I do worry to a certain extent, that given the economic situation that we're passing through now, that people will turn to Borderlands history um, as a catch-all uh, category, if you will, uh, to get faculty members who can teach a number of different things. Uh, and many bring a little less about what kind of critical insights that person brings to the table as a Borderlands historian. I think the challenge for Borderlands historians really is going to be to be able to articulate as a group what those critical interventions are that makes Borderlands history important as a standalone field. And I think until we do that, the expansion of Borderlands history out there in the job market in a way that we can kind of think of the field with a larger market of history, and, and the expansion of borderlands history among those who identify as, as, as borderlands historians, I think that those two things are not going to necessarily be moving to the same tune. And in fact, I suspect, and I would wager, 
that probably for years to come, many so-called borderlands historians will wear different kinds of hats. Uh, and those hats might seem to be rather traditional. Um, they might be American historians or Mexican historians. They might find that the institution that they're working in uh, prefers to emphasize their expertise as a Native American scholar or as a Chicano historian. Um, and I think that's nothing new. Um, I just think that borderlands historians need to prepare for a future in which they need to work from a number of different subject positions without expecting that the borderlands history subject position is going to change the field in any significant way. It can change the field in a significant way if in the next generation we start putting on the table some agreed upon critical insights that might mobilize uh, larger groups of people together around that borderlands paradigm. But I think we still have to see what direction that's going to go. Uh, Pekka and I wrote our piece as a kind of opening call uh, for that kind of movement. Um, but it's really not up to us uh, to determine where that's going to lead us. So it sounds like we are at the threshold of, to borrow from the title of the special issue of the JAH in September 2011, the brave new world of Borderlands history. I would like to think so. I think how brave that world is, or how new it is, is really going to be in the eye of the beholder. I think words like brave new world are used in part to get people's blood coursing uh, in a good way, probably sometimes in a not so good way. Uh, but I think in many ways, at its best, Borderlands history is also kind of an old, curious world, if you will. It, it's building on a number of old insights, but it's curious about bringing those insights together in a new way. And I think it's that constellation of older ideas and the way that they come together that makes Borderlands history potentially new. And I would like to think that we're only now beginning to anticipate what that novelty looks like. Professor Truitt, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. The Organization of American Historians holds several events each year for researchers and educators in American history. To learn more about the OAH Annual Meeting, the OAH Community College Workshop, and other ways to connect with researchers and educators, visit the OAH website at www.oah.org meetings. podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the JAH podcast for September 2011. Please join us for our next podcast in December. If you have any questions, we can be reached at jahcast at oah.org.